have a dream that all men are created Hello everyone, welcome back to your story. I'm your host Ian Kath, this is episode 58. It's been a terribly long time, sorry about that everybody, but I've been busy, I've been busy with lots of things, but I've been particularly busy with Create Your Life Story. Create Your Life Story? Yeah, that's my other podcast, my other podcast over at createyourlifestory.com. I'd love to be doing more Your Story episodes, but I actually have to spin something a bit more than what Your Story is and create something else. So what I'm doing is I'm creating a mechanism whereby hopefully people will be able to learn how to do some of the things that I've learned to do while I've been doing Your Story. So I'm showing people how to sit down with somebody else and do an interview or sit down with themselves and actually express their life and get it out and about and share it with people so that this information doesn't get lost as the generations pass by. Even young people who want to capture their life now at 20 or 25 years of age and they want to maybe grab a, a snapshot, a diary entry, an audio diary entry for their future selves. So I'm giving you all the hints and tips of how to do that over at createyourlifestory.com and I'm very busy. I'm trying to put out as many episodes as I possibly can as often as I can. It's a podcast and it's a blog. I'd love you to check it out and see what you think of it and uh, let us know what you think of it. And while you're on the internet, go to yourstorypodcast.com as well. That's where we live, where we're doing your story. And that's where you can also get the email address, which is, of course, chat at yourstorypodcast.com. And while you're there, if you happen to have a Facebook account, why don't you uh, find the Your Story Facebook page and give us a like so that uh, we can form a little bit of a community. If you happen to feel like jumping onto iTunes and writing a review, because all the reviews are different in each country. Here in Australia, we've got a certain number of reviews, but it's only the iTunes Australian store that actually sees those reviews. In the US, in Canada, in South Africa, in Argentina, you've got your own iTunes stores. So any comments are going to be relevant to your country and your country only. On the site also, there are links to the music from IOTO Promonet, which is over at IOTO Alliance. That's where I get the music to use in the show, and you can download each of these little bits of music from the links at the end of the post for yourself to keep for free. And if you like that particular album, you can go to IOTO Promonet and get the album and pay for it and actually help the artists who supply it to me. But I've been very busy. I've been very busy with Create Your Life Story, which is taking up a huge amount of my time, and I'm trying to build something there, and it's doing quite well. So I've been neglecting, unfortunately, your story somewhat, but also I've been waylaid by a few other things, because, you know, I am I am wanting to put out content. I really, truly do love your story, and I love what I'm doing here, and I love giving this information to you. So I sent out quite a few emails before Christmas. I had about four or five people tentatively lined up. We were trying to organize the times and position it all. And then Christmas started looming and everybody moves into the silly season and it was all just too hard. So we had to shut everything through until January. And just as January was getting underway and I was just starting to send the emails out, I got waylaid by the rising river that we had here and the floods that we had issues with here in Brisbane. I didn't get flooded myself. It came to my boundary, came very, very close, but I had to evacuate. And while I had everything out, I decided to do a renovation on my unit. I've said a lot more about this in a little addendum episode, which you can go and check out if you want to. It's the previous one on the site. So I had to get out and I had to do a renovation. So I was busy for another three weeks and that sort of swept into February. And then I had to do makeup podcast episodes for Create Your Life Story. So I've been very busy. The whole time I've been negotiating with people to get them back over here to your story and sit down and talk with them. You know, it's not as easy as you think. I thought it was going to be very easy. I thought I'd just have to walk up to people and say, hey, um, you want to tell me your story? But it's not like that. People get a little bit awkward. They feel apprehensive. They're busy. They maybe don't want to share. They're private. Uh, there's lots of reasons. And after I went through my initial group of people, I've been finding it a little bit challenging to find people. And I do like to find people in my physical location because it's wonderful to sit down with them. As a matter of fact, I did another recording just yesterday, which I'll be editing over the weekend and uh, hopefully get out to you next week. And uh, it was one of those situations where I was sitting down across a table and it was great to engage with her. So there's another one coming along with today's episode. 
Today's episode is a little bit different though because it's done over Skype. This is the first Skype recorded conversation I have done for your story. And the reason being is over Christmas, I was contacted and asked if I'd like to have him back on the show because we caught up several years ago. Several years ago, we were together in Prague having a bit of a a yarn. I produced a podcast episode with him and he produced one with me on his show. And we got to know each other very well. And we've developed this relationship over the last couple of years because of our initial relationship through Twitter, which introduced us to each other. And then the three days that I spent with him in Prague. And we've stayed in contact over the years. And I've been following what he's been up to and how his life has changed. And it was time to get him back on the show to find out how his life has changed. What are the things that are important in his world now? How they are now different to the way they used to be. And what it's like for him to return back to his home country after being in Europe for so long. Dear listener, let's welcome back Adam Daniel Mazay and his story. Good, eh? <laughs> you North Americans, when you use that accent, it always sounds just wrong. Adam Daniel Mazay, g'day, mate. Welcome. Nice to be here again, Ian. It's been too long. Don't yeah. ever do that again. Yeah, it's been a very long time. We're doing a Skype conversation for people listening in on this. We've decided to do this on Skype because the last time we were together was back in 2008 when we caught up in Prague when you were living in the Czech Republic and we spent many a good hour yarning and drinking fine Czech Pilsner. And uh, since then, well, you know, a lot of things have happened. And where are you right now, mate? I'm in Toronto, Canada, the city I was born in. And I am four months into my cultural re-entry, and it's been damn good. I can say that, I think, at this point, after four months, it's been damn good. It's a little difficult at first. Um, there were some adjustments. For the most part, it's been a smooth re-entry. All re-entry should be this smooth, Ian. <laughs> what, what, what's it like? You know, you're a Canuck. You, know, you grew up in that city, and then you went to Europe, and you started getting all this European style about you and yeah i actually you know thought of you as being more european than canadian when i met you what's it like coming back are you an an expat european in canada you know kind of over here at the beginning at least i felt kind of different than 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 the average joe on the street i I, it, it was difficult to kind of adjust because while you know it's a culture that i know very well and it's a dialogue that i that i can have very instantly and why there and and while it's people that i know intuitively for example i can have a conversation with somebody on the street and there are a lot of cultural cues that are just understood by the nature of the type of conversation that we're having because we're all born in the same city at some stage i felt like i had progressed beyond what everybody had gone through up to this point. Yes, people travel. Yes, people go outside the country. Yes, people have passports. But at some stage, they just didn't take the big plunge. And my having lived outside of the country for five years was proof positive that mm, I was just a little bit different than everybody else. And I think even to some stage, I remain different than everybody else, which could be a, an attractive or a repellence factor. I'm still not sure. I haven't concluded yet whether it's the good thing or the bad thing. In coming back and getting back into your re-immersion into it, have you found any challenges? Yes. Um, well, the challenges to me are more personal. So, for instance, you know, I had an opportunity to reacquaint myself with a lot of my friends that I went to university with, for instance. I went to university in Montreal at a, at a school called McGill University, which is one of the country's big schools that a lot of international students from across the world go to. And we had a lot of Aussies there, too, incidentally. And um, a lot of my friends have three or four kids already. And a lot of my friends kind of moved ahead in terms of the family responsibilities willingly and wantingly but i when i you know when i had gone to visit them at least when i'd come back there were two or three occasions in rapid succession that i'd gone to visit my friends in montreal and i'd seen like in the interim in the five years that i'd spent in europe you know what i was doing and i'll and i don't regret a single instant of it but i see what i got and i came to canada with such and such a situation and i saw my friends that had already gone down the track at a certain level and i don't know if it was envy but you know as given how much I really enjoy children and how much I, I enjoy the family aspect, I really felt as though, for a while at least, I felt as though I had done something wrong, I think. I was trying to avoid the use of the word wrong. Are you saying that you, what, you felt like you blew it because you didn't do the mortgage and family thing? 
Yeah, not not so not, not not so much the mortgage. Even though one of my friends has a five thousand dollar overhead every month with his three kids and his wife, that he readily admitted to me that he had. I don't know because you're a parent, and so it's like you understand. I think children are a payoff, and they're a joy for the most part and a pleasure. And when you know you can live your life independently for as, as long as you wish. When you see these kids and they're so joyous, and you can sort of horse around with them. Having said all of that, I felt as though something was kind of missing, you know, and it was something that I didn't cultivate while I was uh, busy grooming my European self. Mm, you sound <laughs> clucky, mate. You sound like you want to have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how you guys call it? Clucky? That's cool. Clucky. Yeah, yeah like, a, like a mother hen sitting on a cluck of eggs. Oh, I like that. That's yeah. good. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. I, I know it would be a great dad, and I know that uh, it would be fun to have kids, but um, it's hard because I'm two people in one body, and by that I mean to say is like on the one hand I have a very, what I consider to be a strong moral compass that keeps me grounded um, to things that help people adjust properly. But on the other side, I'm this total wild man at 37 years of age who has really, and I don't even want to get into details, like experienced a lot of um, of thrills. <laughs> well, you, you, you've had the classic European self-indulgent single lifestyle, haven't you? Yeah, wine, women and song, the classic, you know, live the high life in uh, and explore the the richness of European culture. A lot of people would be green with envy as they sort of flog themselves to pay off their mortgages. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I don't want to lose aspects of that part of me because I think that part of me fuels me. I enjoy it. And it's a bit of a departure from the monotony. Two people in one body theme comes into play because you can take any one of the sides, those two polarities of those two solitudes, and if you devote too much energy to one of the sides, you're not really a, a full human being, you know. I had been living this this libertine lifestyle, as you describe it, for the last five years, and I did good by that, but let's put it this way. In an environment like Prague, which is tailor-made for the libertine's lifestyle, I was a perfect match. I was like the square peg in the square socket. But, you know, coming back to like North America, which is very just like, it's very by the book, you know, Canada, United States, very by the book, you know, you earn, you spend, you've got it all mapped out. You know, the kids are going here at this hour. You're going to like golf at this hour. You know, you're coming home for dinny din at this hour. And this libertine lifestyle to most straight laced Canadians and Americans, you are an anomaly. You well, are like a, a space alien. Well, you are, you know, right now, for those listening in on this, it's um, quarter past five you know, on Friday afternoon here in Australia. And you're working hard in Canada. What time is it there, Adam? It's a quarter past two in the morning. Yeah, so that's very much the, um, you know, try and do that with a wife and a couple of kids and a job to go to at seven o'clock in the morning, eh? You know, so you're still doing it a bit. You're still doing it. Old habits die hard. Yeah, well, that's fair enough too. You said before, you know, balancing two parts of your life. You've got this wild man lifestyle and uh, you've come back. Do you miss it? Do you miss that lifestyle, that libertine lifestyle that you had back there in Prague? I mean, I can get graphic and say the aspects that I do really miss, and perhaps I should because I think it would be of interest to oh, most people just, listening. Just, just send me the photos, mate. We're on Skype, so send them through to me. No worries. <laughs> I won't send them to anybody. Promise. In terms of Prague, as, as a specific city, I miss the easy access of, for example, like the social life is just it's so easy access. I mean, you can just kind of grab anybody and, and have some fun. The drinking is way more... Uh, as you had experienced, the whole social life, the outing culture is way more accessible. There's no forethought that goes into an evening of having a good time. And invariably what you have with your what you discover that is with Europeans is that they will go out and they will have fun and they will drink and they'll and they'll have a meal, you know, and they'll go and they'll party, but they'll get up for the next morning and they'll still go to the office and they'll still work. Yeah, you, one could say that it doesn't really make for a productive society. And I would readily grant that it's not the most productive society. But then kind of societies that we live here, that's also a kind of a different end of the of the continuum. I'm not going to say that that's 
uh, a really good way to do things. It's not a great way to do things in the pure sense of what we did in Prague. It's not a great way to do things sure. the way we do things here in, in the U.S. and Canada and in Oz. So it's like, how do you find the middle grounds, you know? And like, you can continue to behave as I would behave that I did in Prague. But, you know, these people won't understand like what it's like going out on a Tuesday night, for example, and knocking back three beers with your bros. It's just, it, it, to these people, that, that kind of behavior is irresponsible. Whereas if you didn't go out and do that with your friends on a Wednesday when they invited you for whatever reason, you would be the anomaly. You see how it works? Yeah. Maybe Prague's too extreme of an example, but at least I can only speak about it perspective because that's the one that I've been living for five years, you see. So you're in Prague, right? What sort of work were you doing? Just to recap, I remember you doing some sort of journalist type work. Yeah, I was a journalist and, and I, I was a fixer. I mean, I was I was the kind of person that people would, would come to if you needed contacts because I had worked with the diplomatic and expatriate business communities in Prague. I was the kind of guy that knew people and I knew the things that were going on in the city. So you came to me, people knew me already coming into the city. So they would come and they would consult with me and they'd ask, how do I set up an LLC? How do I set up, you know, where do I, where do I get the best apartment? Who do I talk to that, you know, that, that'll sell me like a decent apartment? Where do I rent this? You know, where do I go and get my mobile phone set up? Things like that. I knew things like that because I'd been researching things like that over the time that I was in the city. Plus, I talked to a lot of diplomats and diplomats in, in the Czech Republic, which is pretty much a cushy and posh posting, which doesn't entail a lot of, you know, diplomatic hard number crunching and work. Like uh, if you were the uh, Australian ambassador to the court of St. James, your responsibilities would be a hell of a lot more burdensome than if you were the Australian ambassador to Prague, you know. Yeah. So that's you're a bit of a fix-it journo, you know, sort people out, as you did for me when I came to Prague. Truth, you looked after me with money changing and accommodation and all sorts of stuff, and that was wonderful. And I still appreciate that, Adam. Thanks. But what are you doing now? Well, before I went to Prague, um, which is probably a discussion that we didn't have at the time when we did the interview those several months and perhaps years ago, has it been that long already? Yeah, How mate. many years? It's, been... <clears throat> it's two and a half years now, mate. It's a big catch-up, two and a half years ago. Well, I was in the film business before I went to the Czech Republic and I had a really nasty time making my second short film, which I had done in New Zealand, in fact, and it had ended in 2005 and I had an atrocious experience with a small skeleton crew. It was a rancorous time. We had a lot of debates. I lost quite a bit of money and we had this what we call creativity by committee in which you're constantly being overruled by different folks that are, you know, contributing to your overall idea. And I really got whacked pretty hard. I got back to Canada in September of 2005 and I basically swore off filmmaking for all time, you know. And I took a flight up to Vancouver, Canada. I, I had three months worth of cash. I rented an apartment. I said, I'm going to do something in these three months, a beginning to end, like a discrete object, something that I can finish. You know, I was so I was so burned up about the fact that I didn't finish what I started. So I, I wrote my first collection of short stories uh, called We Are the New Auroras. And I had been in Prague for three months back in 2002. So I got in touch with some of my old friends in Prague and I said, Hey, you know, I, I'm I'm not ready to settle down again and do this thing. I had a really, really nice apartment, which I had sold. I'm going back to the Czech Republic because the overheads are low. I had a really good time. I felt like I had unfinished business in that country. And my friends were basically very excited about the prospect of me coming back. And the journalist thing fell in my lap, and I totally divorced myself from all things film. But when I got back to Canada and at, toward, towards the end of my stint in the Czech Republic, I started to get involved again with film stuff because I'd always been watching films throughout that whole time, but I didn't want to do anything with respect to the business. But a new position emerged in 2008 called the PMD, Producer of Marketing and Distribution. And it, since 2008, it's been growing year by year. And I locked onto this early last year. And I decided that it was something that I could do because it was very similar to the kinds of things that I was doing with the journalism in Prague, the fixing, the contacts, the content production, and the networking online especially, which is something that I had been working very stridently on throughout 
2008 all the way to 2010. So I just I did a lateral shift, and that's really where, where what I'm doing over here. PMD is a producer of marketing and distribution. I'll get actually you know what before I get into that. So my father got very ill at the end of last year. He had not informed neither myself or my sister. So basically, I had been back for a visit in September, and I had learned all of this stuff. It had rapidly dawned on me that it was a very self-indulgent thing that I had been doing in staying away for so long from my family that they didn't really think that they wanted to burden me with their concerns. Um, It was time to pull up stakes. Well, I got very involved with PMDing as well. Professionally, I got very involved with this. What is a producer of marketing and distribution? Producer of marketing and distribution is an above-the-line crew position. Um, Above-the-line meaning on a par with the director, the producer, and your lead cast. It's an above-the-line position that was created around 2008 when the market for independent film changed, when distributors were not paying money to buy independent films anymore, and when the economy changed, filmmakers needed to do more with less that was not going to be going through the traditional distribution channels. You had a film, you took it to Sundance in Utah, you got noticed, and you got bought out. You'd get a a bundle of cash, you'd use that to pay down a portion of your budget that you'd already spent, and then you'd get a percentage of the money for sales that they would conduct in other territories. So the man who created this position, his name is John Reese, in 2007 wrote a book called think outside the box office. And in it, he, d- he coined the term PMD, producer of marketing and distribution, because he had gone through a similar situation himself with his documentary called Bomb It. He was marketing his own movie. He was calling up theatrical bookers by himself. You know, he's trying to get gigs for the film. He was stamping his own DVDs. He was cutting his own bonus materials on DVDs. All the things that PMDs now do. He said that now, rather than take $100,000, for instance, of budget that you get to make your movie, he said, now we have the new 50-50. You take $50,000 and you put it in escrow, and that money you save for marketing and distribution, once you're done post-production on your actual story, whether it's a doc or a feature, and you use that money to market and self-distribute your film so that you have cash for the long, long haul that follows making a movie. What this reminds me of is independent young artists who are singers or film producers or writers who are getting onto the internet and doing all their own promotion. I, you know, I've seen authors, I've seen all sorts of people doing exactly what you're talking about, where they're just using all of this new media that we have around us and self-promoting. But is that basically what you're talking about? Yes, it is what we're talking about. It's basically harnessing all the power of democratized filmmaking tools and distribution Uh, channels so that you can control the distribution game so that you can keep all of the rights to your film and especially the new emerging rights which are digital rights which are things that the traditional model was not built to handle and accommodate now you with all the power in your hands of being able to go to the consumer directly and cutting out the middleman really harnessing those tools and using it to maximum effectiveness. And as a result, you end up shooting the films for smaller budgets anyway. And you're more, I don't know if this is a word, but you're more fiduciarily responsible for your own pictures as opposed to the old model, which is make the movie, make the movie. I don't care how much it costs. It's made them much more financially responsible. So art and commerce meet on the playing field of the PMD. Why, why should a young jazz singer like Sarah Collier, who we had on the show a couple months back, why should somebody like that even bother with somebody like you? Why not just do it themselves? Sarah Collier doesn't have time necessarily to spend on doing the scads of research that are necessarily required to find communities of people who might be consumers or connoisseurs of her music. She happens to be an exceptionally talented artist and she's a dead ringer for, you know, like for Diane Krall, as you had even said during the interview, in many respects, she knows how to mimic her voice. But Sarah Collier, as a jazz musician, should be focusing on her music and she should not be focusing on the business aspects per 
say of her craft. Sarah Collier's strengths are singing, using her voice instruments. What she shouldn't necessarily spend all of her time doing is the grunt work of blogging, content production, social media channels. She can dabble in that, but she shouldn't be spending all of her time doing that because that takes away from the thing that she's really good at, you see? What do you bring to, say, a documentary filmmaker that they can't do themselves? You've said what they should be concentrating on, but what are you going to bring to them? You can do some of that social networking. Is that all you're going to do? Just sit on Facebook and send a few tweets out for them? The, the PMD's results are actually measurable. We have tools like Radian6, R-A-D-I-N number 6.com, which is a, an, a site that is a for-pay pro caliber site, which you can use, which measures your website's reach in all kinds of different channels. If your PMD is not doing their job properly, you'll know right away that they're not doing the job properly because you can check and basically you describe Facebook and Twitter those are what I call PMDing 101 tricks, the bare minimum. That's not what PMDs do only. They do monitor social media channels, but you know they also get into other things like asking questions on LinkedIn, which is not necessarily something so intuitive. It could also include um, like uploading PDFs to a site like Scribd and keeping everything organized. I mean, it sounds like it's just a clerical transactional thing. That's just one aspect of what PMDs do. What I would bring Sarah Collier are my 4,300 Facebook followers who are waiting on to, to have me deliver content to them because I'm in the know because I'm spending all of that time in online worlds and outposts. And I have my own network and downline of people that I could work with that can assist me in doing things that Sarah doesn't necessarily have access to. So I most definitely, I think filmmaking, like all businesses, is a business of relationships. And I bring my relationships to the table that Sarah might have her own relationships, but I have other ones. And those relationships are monetizable. And that's basically what I can offer her or so, anybody else for that matter. So you're talking about your community that follow you around. It's all well and good to have 4,000 Facebook followers and God knows what else following you, but what if they're the wrong people? What if you want to hook in with people who are into chop-topping, pimping up old Chevrolets or something like that, something that you don't mix with, a group of people that you don't have any connection with at all? Can you bring something to those people? A lot, a lot of the work that I do as well involves going out online and finding like-minded communities. So based on the theme material of what we're talking about, we'll stay away from the musicians because that's not something that I that I get involved with, even though I'm interested in taking on music clients. But I, I basically film. So depending on what the theme or the narrative is, the easiest film actually to do PMDing for is a cause-based documentary. For example, something like an inconvenient truth type of documentary. One of my friends, Michelle Kafko, she's another PMD. She's in Chicago. She's doing a, a, something called Revenge of the Electric Car. So for her to go out into the education distribution market, and there's a big, big market for that, it's not difficult for her to find communities online that would be very interested in appeals to their community to possibly sell that DVD to them. So what's the value add that, for example, Michelle would bring, she has to go out and find those communities. That takes a lot of time to find them. Not just to find them, you have to appeal to them and say, look, I have a cause-based documentary. It's about X, Y, and Z. I think that this film would be of interest to your community. Now, I've gone online to a site like quantserve.com, and I said to myself, I checked your QuantServe numbers. You get really good metrics from such and such, you know, constituency. Would you be willing to sell or make mention of my DVD offer of, you know, fourteen ninety nine with a, you know, with a coupon code because it's like a special thing in your next newsletter that goes out to your community? Would you be interested in doing that? Because I think electric car, you know, innovations would be of interest to you. The filmmaker in that particular instance doesn't necessarily have the time to sit and go through all those different communities. The reason they don't have time is because as a filmmaker, you're always going on to the next gig. And the PMD, rather than go on to the next gig, they're the first person on set and they're the last person to shut the lights. But there's a myriad of things that the PMD does that are very much dependent on the PMD's skills. The ideal time to take on a PMD is before you even write the script, because that PMD, if they're really savvy and they know what they're doing, then they can suggest 
changes to the script that might place a particular sequence in a given location that might be a really good target for marketing. Instead of shooting it in an interior of a house, you might want to shoot it in an interior of a cafe because then what you can do is you can appeal to that cafe, that cafe owner and piggyback on their marketing budget. Like it really requires a lot of stuff that's in the PMD's head that they can either share or not share. It's very akin to the things as I said that I was doing in Prague. I knew what time things were opening and closing. I knew it because I'd spent time there. The other thing about coming on early in the script stage is you set good rhythms from the beginning. You get the the producers and the filmmakers thinking about all of these marketing distribution things right from the get-go. Three months later, when you're already done with the film, it's already like ingrained, you know? Okay, okay. So I'm starting to get a bit of a grasp of what it's all about. But why? Why are you doing this? Just mentioned before about being in Prague, so there's a bit of a personality thing. But you said earlier that you actually like to make films and you got blown out of that and you've sort of drifted back to it. But why are you doing all this desk jockey stuff? Why haven't you gone back to actually filmmaking? Or are you still bruised from that first experience in New Zealand? Why being a PMD? First of all, there's a lot of content out there. Once film went democratic, completely democratic in the sense of anybody could pick up a relatively low-cost piece of film equipment. You know, you have these flip cams by Cisco that, you know, they sell for a hundred bucks. They have uh, two hours worth of recording time on them at high definition quality. Once filmmaking went democratic and editing tools, I mean, you can edit on your iPhone, you know, you have apps that you can actually edit footage on your iPhone as you're, as you're waiting for, for a bus or something like that, you know. Once filmmaking went to that level of democratization, there is so much content out there that to get proper traction for your particular story, that requires a colossal amount of escape velocity, which in film terms means cash. The reason I didn't get back into it was I kind of like where I'm at right now in my life. I'm in, I'm in an assistive capacity. I like helping people. It's actually the difference between being an egomaniac and being kind of more of, you called it the clucker, you know, like, and there was a point in my life, I think maybe, you know, 10 years ago where I felt like I really wanted to just be the big shit. You know, I really wanted to be the big guy. In in terms of the PMDing world, um, if you Google PMD or you Google terms like producer of marketing and distribution, my name comes up always in the top five rankings because I'm I'm very cognizant of making sure that I get there because people will search for the term. I think I'm still kind of the big cat in the in, in my area, but I don't have to be like the wonderkin, the discovery of it all. So yeah, this is all well and good, and maybe people will get to know what a PMD is in time, but isn't it just a variation on being a marketing person in the film industry? Why can't those existing marketing people who are out there doing all the distribution and marketing, why can't they just go and do all this stuff? Or do you have an edge on those people? That's a great question that I get asked with almost every film. And you are a film industry person. So I'm, I get asked that question by film industry people everywhere. I got asked that question in Sundance. I got asked that question with you know meetings that I have with bigger producers here in Toronto. The reason why is because all of those people that you describe, whether it's a unit publicist who comes on to make sure that they're running interference with the media, or whether it's um, a distributor that, that takes a film and adds it to their roster of films that they represent, none of those people are dedicated to the production in a way that the PMD is, to wit. The unit publicist comes on for the duration of the film while it's making its publicity run, and then they're off doing something else. The distributor who takes your film and adds it to a roster of other films that they have from all over the world, they are not giving your film primo attention anytime. They're giving it attention for as long as it serves their particular niche or interest, and then they just add it to a list of other films that gets the straight line or the standardized treatment that the rest of the films receive. The PMD is probably the only crew member above the line on any film that is exclusively tasked with marketing and distribution, and they're dedicated to the film. The word that we use is we are embedded on the film. We do not go and take other gigs. We work for the film. We take a profit share in the film's profits. We don't just work by the hour. These other people that you described, they're kind of like hired laborers. Okay, expensive ones at that, but they're hired laborers. You actually have a vested interest in the film. 
you're part of the production. I have two pricing policies that I charge my clients, and that all depends on how involved I get with the production. On the one hand, I have an a la carte pricing, which is a monthly rate that I charge my clients that I, I take a minimum three-month commitment. It's a monthly rate that I charge. Most of my clients are in that category because that particular rate is one-third of what I charge if I'm actually going to be embedded on your production, at which time I have to cut out a lot of my so-called a la carte clients because then I completely hand myself over to the benefit of the production that I'm embedded on. I get a lot of people that I do damage control for. I call it damage control. They've tried the DIY method themselves. They've botched it. They've gone they've they've tried too much, too fast, spent too much of their own cash or signed away impetuously too many of their own rights too quickly and they made a lot of mistakes. At that point, it's the equivalent of being on your back foot and you have a very difficult time recovering from something that erroneous. If I'm brought in at the right time with the right filmmaker, then the a la carte method could work. Ideally, you want to be there from the beginning in an embedded capacity, but that's a big, big financial hit for clients that are already financially cash strapped that didn't allocate money for marketing and distribution properly in their budget. I've only had one client do that so far. Do you ever get people come up to you and say, listen, I'll, we'll cut you in on a deal of the action. You do the work and you know it's going to be a great success. We're going to make a mozza and you can have a 5%, 10% cut of the action. Do you get that sort of offer? I get that jive talk. I get that jive talk all the time. I get people telling me, can you help us get like proper distribution? So I go, what do you mean proper distribution? They go, you know, like we want to go get like distributed by Sony Pictures Classics. You know, we want like a proper distributor to pick us up. I go, okay, why don't you go and get it? I mean, I'll wait here, go and get it. When you get it, come on back and we'll, you know, we'll crack open a bottle of wine and we'll, and we'll, and we'll have some, we'll have a party. If the market were such that distributors were buying films and good films, I'm not talking about crud films. We're talking about the 5% of the films that actually are worthwhile that watch that, that have proper techniques. If those films are not being bought up by golly, you know, you really have to look at the market in a completely different capacity. I don't think we're looking at a film market today. Is the film market of the time when perhaps you entered in film, Ian, or and, that, and that's not. <laughs> I don't mean to say anything by that statement. By the way, I just mean to say is like you entered, you entered film at a time when the filmmaking model was was healthy and when deals were were consolidated and money was flowing in the industry. Wow. Now we're at a time when money is not being made. So to people that tell me, you want, you want a piece of the action? It's like the DJ at the wedding. You know, people say to him, yeah, you know, come on, like DJ has like a cut rate. I don't know, just throw a number out. They say, can I get like a discount? He's like, wait a second, wait a second. You spent X thousands of dollars on your wedding and now you're trying to scrimp on the DJ? No, 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 no. You want to have a proper wedding, right? That means you spend on the DJ. So I kind of have a similar discussion with my clients. I go, wait a second. You just spent like $20,000 on this movie. I have one client, for example, that shot their film for $20,000. It's a great ensemble picture. It's a great film. And they're trying to nickel and dime me on the PMDing. I go, wait a second. Don't you want to make your money back on this project? They're like, of course we do. I go, then you have to pay your people right. Because that's a person that's actually going to bat for you. They're doing their work for your benefit. Their focus is entirely upon you. And my rates are not going to break the bank. If you can't afford me, you're not really interested in your movie going anywhere. There's sales agents at film festivals. Again, I just came back from Sundance, so I know this. They charge for their exclusive services at a film festival for the duration of the festival, chasing down deals for you you being the filmmaker, they will charge a flat fee of $5,000 for their week-long services. Guess how many other clients they charge $5,000? Anywhere between five and 10 other clients. But they'll take 5,000 for your picture and they're lopping it together with the rest. You think they're sleeping and breathing and, 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 and whatevering your picture? Yeah. No way. Yeah, yeah, and that's, no a, that's only for one week. But you, what you're talking about for PMDs is you could be on for months, maybe even years if you're fully embedded from start to finish. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm starting to understand it. I'm starting to understand it. So, how are you finding it personally? How are you finding doing this? What are you, you know, what are you getting out of it? You're getting a buzz, or you, you enjoying it? You know, giving you a sense of enthusiasm or life, or what? 
I'm the kind of individual that doesn't like having a boss. I'm, I'm not a boss person. I don't like working for people. I don't like people breathing down my neck and telling me how to run my life. I guess I got to an age already in my life where I don't need to have a boss tell me what to do. That's not to say that I have all the answers. I most certainly don't. And I, lo- and I love mentorship. And I like working for people that are really mavens, as we call them in their craft. I love working for people like that. They don't have to be business people. I don't like working for bosses. Came back to Canada, it was my my objective to create for myself a job where I could call the shots, I could run my schedule the way I want, such that if I wanna work all night long, case in point, it's three in the morning here in Toronto, if I wanna work all night long, I can. If I want to meet you, Ian, for like a cup of coffee at 2.30 and have a good chin wag and talk about girls for like three hours, I can do that. I wanted a job that um, that gave me ultimate flexibility. That was the A part. The B part is I wanted a job where I could, where by my efforts, I could monitor my success. So if I were earning considerable amount of money, then I knew that I was doing okay. When I sign independent film clients in Los Angeles, that means I'm getting closer to the nexus. I'm getting closer to where it should be. And then I'm getting the recognition from my peers. Like I I got interviewed not just by you. And on the strength of those interviews, I had received a lot of client inquiry. I didn't law I didn't close every every inquiry, but I closed a couple of inquiries and that was a real heady rush. It's funny, you know, like we're not sitting in a bar in Prague, but I'm still watching you via this camera on Skype. And the enthusiasm in your face, you can see that you get a buzz out of that. But that's what you get out of it. And that's great. And that's the financial reward and all that sort of thing. But what have you been able to give your clients that have maybe also given you a buzz and the take home for them? One of my clients, it's a film called No Ordinary Trifle. No Ordinary Trifle is a romantic comedy. It's shot in the UK. Uh, in the cast, you have a couple of pretty famous British actors. One of them goes by the name of Do Gray Scott. It's on IMDb, everybody, if you want to check as you're listening. Um, Do Gray Scott, who played a bad guy in Mission Impossible 2. And then Claire oh, which, Forlani. Which I happen to work on, by the way. I worked, ah. Yeah, I worked on MI2. Yeah, it was my first big, big American production I worked on. Yeah, anyway, carry on. And Claire Forlani, uh, who is the woman in Meet Joe Black. Those are A-list stars. And a number of other ones. Simon Calla, who was in Four Weddings and a Funeral. And uh, Lee Boardman, who was in Coronation Street, a soap opera in, in that country. James Hacking is the writer and director of that picture. James listened to an interview that I did for an organization in the United States called Film Specific. And he just called me up out of the blue and he said, I just heard your interview with Stacy Parks at Film Specific. And I thought that this thing is the coolest thing. I got that phone call and that was like a really, really, really big hit. I was so excited. So that was good. And in terms of how I helped James, nobody responded to him as quickly as I respond. So he'll give me a task and I'll whip it out. Like I will execute it very quickly. For example, we just went up to a film festival in Scotland called Kingacy. It's called Food on Film. The film's a romantic comedy about a chef who is uh, who lost his wife early in his career and he was an award-winning chef there's a cameo by gordon ramsay the famous chef in the film specifically what did you do for him to uh, make it better james had absolutely no online outposts at all um, when he started shooting the movie he had no so when did you come in when did you come involved technically late the film's already in the can the picture's locked he, and he had already done some dabbling with some distributors uh, in the UK and the States, and he was entertaining some offers for some U.S. distribution with the slew of restrictions that that entailed. He, right now, he has a window of opportunity to do some DIY stuff. So we're, we're basically exploiting this window of opportunity now to do as many DIY things with the film as possible. So I set up his online outposts. There's no distributor that would set up a website for him. There's a website with widgets, a website with a mailing list. I educated him about like having a mailing list that would be portable to the next project, not just on the current project. I asked him if he was going to the film festival in Kingussie in Scotland. I said, who's recording that? He goes, what? I go, who's recording it? Who's taking the behind the scenes footage? Who's recording? Because he went up with one of the stars, right? So who's recording the interviews? Who's taking all the media? Who's doing media interference? 
Are you getting photos of the area? Are you are you blogging about the experience? Are you doing a daily journal? None of these things that he had known intuitively, but none of these things he was actually doing. Every day I come out with a report and a list of tasks that he has to do. I was also going out and I was soliciting guest posts from all of his actors to write on the blog so that they could come and participate and thereby increase the numbers of the film and and get some better numbers over to the website. I do SEO. I tweak his website for search engine optimization. I do a lot of mechanical tasks, but things that he doesn't know about. What's his web address? NoOrdinaryTrifle.com. And how, how successful has that been for him? It's a slow boil because we have kept some things under wraps that if we let some of those things emerge, it would be a little bit more active because we don't have a DVD to sell just yet. A lot of our efforts are kind of half-baked and we got to keep a lot of things under wraps, but we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of assets that we're, that we're leveraging right now. And once we do the full release and once we let everything go, a lot of the pipe that we're laying now is going to is going to pay dividends. Gotcha, gotcha. I'm looking at the site now, and I can see all the pretty pictures and image of Gordon Ramsay. Even is that the sort of film that can just die, just go dead in the water, and we'll basically not hear about it? Yeah, definitely. And the reason it dies is because it's not marketed properly. It's not exploited properly. Every film has assets. There's the film itself, but we have something we call extra diegetic content is stuff that's related to your film that's not necessarily your film. It means you could use a lot of the things that are like the cutting room floor snippets and the outtakes. If you, you, could, you could mash that stuff together into a sort of a chop suey of webisodic content and you could trickle release that on an extended schedule. There are some content aggregators, and I can name names of them, that would buy that stuff and would pay you money so that you could act and if, if, if it's in screenable condition, not just raw footage, but stuff that you edit and you snip together. That's the kind of stuff that they would pay for. You could also package that stuff together as part of what's known as a special edition DVD so that, you know, you have like a regular release DVD and then you know about crowdfunding, for example, yeah. Kickstarter, Indiegogo, you could run, um, you know, a short crowdfunding campaign and one of the boons, you know, like one of the benefits as you as you go up the excel, the sliding scale of contributions, as you know, for, for your listeners who don't know, the crowdfunding has like levels and stages. For one of the levels, you offer a special edition DVD that has um, additional features of the ones I'm describing, stuff that you don't get behind the scenes footage. Claire Forlani, like in the shower, I mean, it's not going to happen, but I'm just like... You, you, you can imagine just the kind of stuff that we have there. So, um, if you throw enough money in the crowdfunding world, you're going to basically get a walk-on part. Sometimes, it's uh, it's staggering what you know the producers prepared to do for you if you throw money at them. I think crowdfunding. I, I think I, I think like a lot of things online, they have a very short shelf life, and if you're part of the early adopter set. And I think if you jump on things very quickly, you can get first. It's like everything in life. You can get first mover advantage. If you're slow out of the gate or out of the box and um, you're joining the, the fray later, especially with crowdfunding today on this day, you know, in February 2011, I think crowdfunding could be construed as a bit of like a been there, done that sort of thing. We're not even talking about cultural differences, for example. You know, you could approach Americans much more readily than you could British people or Aussies or Kiwis. You know, it's a, it's a kind of a model that's been pretty exhausted. We already have to think of the next best thing. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so it's getting pretty late, pretty late in your morning, and I want to have a beer in my afternoon. What, would, what else would you like to say? You know, I think my intuition was right about coming back to Canada because... Uh, Apropos what subsequently happened to my dad is he went through a surgery. He had a benign growth that was wrapped like a donut around his spinal cord. Mm. It was recently it was recently removed last week on in fact last Wednesday it was removed and he was hospitalized. So there there was like a really big scare that was going on here. And I can just imagine like if I had been, you know, in Europe and just your listeners know my dad's totally okay. He's back to walking. He's, it was just like the most surreal moment because I'd gone into the post-operative and I was just like, I think I was an emotional basket case for like the better part of that of that evening. And all of those things transpired. And I can just imagine like had I been like in Romania or 
had I been in Prague or anywhere else, like or China or something, it would have been, it would have been like so devastating. You know, I, I would have felt so guilty that like I could have been there and I wasn't there. So, in terms of the family stuff, I've kind of. I feel vindicated in having come back. Okay. So, so like a lot, a lot of interesting things just so, happened, like in like a very short period. So, you're fairly happy to stay in Toronto. Well, I, I want to come down and see my brother in in Australia. I mean, I I I think um, you know I have family members that have traveled to Australia two and three times each, and here I was in New Zealand, and I never had crossed the what's it? Not the Tasmanian. What yeah, is it called? It, the, the Tasman Sea. Is it Tasman? Okay. So and I hadn't I hadn't flown across to Tasman to come and visit my friend in Brisbane. So, is it is it the last stop? Mm, I find I find it's a great city to be in in terms of uh, access. I don't know if I if this is where I want to hang my hat. I feel at many many times that it's too familiar, and it's like it took me four months to realize that I kind of outgrew the place. But um, so you're mm. happy to stay for the moment, but you could be end up anywhere. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you know, I, I I definitely like the services and the accessibility. Canada's really sweet. I mean, I could imagine myself getting back out to the West Coast because that's a real, um, it's really where I think I, I feel very comfortable out there. But I, I haven't made any concrete plans. Uh, it, the, the price is right. You know, I'm doing okay here. Um, Toronto is a big city. It has a lot of prestige. I'm getting a lot of inquiry. I'm getting a lot of interest, and I, I'm, I'm easy to find. If I'd still been living in Prague, you still have that quote-unquote Eastern European um, vestiges. And I noticed that at, at least for the two months that I was doing this in Prague, I noticed people were really people in the states. That is, were really, really reticent at, at once they learned where I was. Now it's on more of a of a normal tip, you know. So yeah. that was one of the be- benefits to being back here. Yeah. Okay, well, Adam, thanks for coming back onto your story and filling us in. It's been, uh, like we said earlier, a couple of years since you were on the show, and uh, it's interesting to find out where you've been and what you've been up to. And uh, if anybody's listening to this and wants to get hold of you, how do they get hold of you, Adam? PMDforHire.com. And you can always call me because I like to talk. (laughs) You do, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) okay adam well thanks for coming on the show again mate and uh all the best with the venture of course i'll be following you on twitter and facebook so i'll know exactly what's going on so um just for the sake of the you know this chat for the podcast goodbye for now see you mate bye-bye bye-bye